Well, it's great to see you. Um, we've already kind of been together because of the Sunday school hour. That lets me get warmed up, so I'm really ready to go by the worship service. And uh, I do enjoy doing this every year. I, I've got certain places I go at certain times, like I've got my uh, January. I do. I've got certain places that I go every Sunday. Most of those through Wednesday in January. This has been one that over the years has moved around a little bit, but more recently it seems to be falling here in March, and uh, I really look forward to it. And I've, your staff, now, Jaron, we could give him an honorary uh, because he's been around so much, but of students that I had in class who are on your staff, now you got five that I know of. And both Owen and Amanda were both students in multiple classes. Courtney. Uh, was a student in multiple classes, and uh, Cody and Megan, uh, uh, Cody was in multiple classes, Megan probably in multiple classes, uh, and so you got five of your staff members that are former students of mine, and so uh, I hope that, I hope that I, I prepared them well, because you're paying the price if I didn't, <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm very proud of all of them, and, uh, and so it's exciting for me to get to come and see them doing what they do here and ministering and doing the thing God's called them to do and he's called them to do it here. Uh, I, feel, I feel such great pride in, the, in what God has done in them. Not arrogance, but pride in what God has done in uh, preparing them and bringing, bringing them here. So thanks be to God for that. Now let's just worry about a sermon this morning. I'm not going to worry about background or anything. I'm just going to do a preach a sermon this morning. So the text is Ephesians chapter 1, and it's going to be verses 15 through 23. So we were talking about offering a blessing on you. How about a prayer for you? Because that's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He's, he writes a prayer for the Ephesian Christians. So this letter would have been carried to the church at Ephesus. And the letter would have been read to them, and when he came to 115, there's this prayer on behalf of them. Since it would then become scripture and is part of our New Testament canon, this prayer now is not only for the Ephesian Christians, this prayer becomes a prayer for all of God's people. So that's what I have for today, a prayer for God's people. So let's start reading at verse 15. He says, For this reason... When I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, in order that, now here's the actual prayer, in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in full knowledge of himself. And that he might enlighten, enlighten the eyes of your heart in order that you might know what is the hope of his calling. What are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us, the ones who believe, according to the working or the powerful working of his mighty strength? which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and by seating him at the right hand in the heavenlies above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name which has been named, 
not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And by subjecting all things under his feet, and he made him head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So I'm fascinated by when Paul prays for a church, what does he pray for? What does he ask God for on their behalf? And when you hear the nature of most of the prayers that we pray for ourselves, most of our prayers focus on immediate needs in our lives, and and appropriately so. I mean, Jesus taught us to pray like that, you know, pray, give us today our daily bread. I mean, that's a very tangible, real need every day, and so Jesus says when you pray, ask for those things. But I'm interested in Paul's prayer for the church. I mean, there there are lots of very tangible, everyday kinds of things he could have prayed for them. These Christians at Ephesus lived in a hostile culture. It was not easy to be part of the people of God in Ephesus. It was not easy to identify with Jesus in Ephesus. And yet, he does not pray for their protection. I'm absolutely certain that the majority of the early Christians in the church at Ephesus would have been poor. They would have lived in poverty. And yet Paul does not pray for their financial gain. It would have been hard to have lived anywhere in the Roman Empire in the first century. I'm sure there was lots of sadness. Circumstances caused depression for lots of people living in this world. And yet Paul did not pray for their happiness. When Paul prayed for the members of the church at Ephesus, he went deeper than just the immediate kinds of needs that we might all experience. And he goes to the heart of the matter. And all these other issues that we might have in our daily lives are secondary to the things he prayed for them. So when in verse 15, he says, for this reason. So the basis of the prayer is, when I heard about your faith in Jesus... And your love for all the saints. That's what inspired his prayer. These two things. Their faith in Jesus and their love for all the saints. And he says, when I heard about it. Did you notice that in verse 15? For this reason, when I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul knew the church at Ephesus. He helped start this church. He planted this church. He stayed three years and ministered to this church when it was just an infant church. He knew the church at Ephesus, but it had been several years since he'd been there. Three, four, five years since he'd been at Ephesus when he writes this letter. And so he's now hearing about them. I'm sure he was interested when he talked to anyone who came through Ephesus. I'm sure he asked, how's the church there? And probably named individuals. And what he heard was good. He heard that they continued to have faith in the Lord Jesus. That is, they continued to trust in Jesus even though it was hard. He knew the church there and he knew the people there and he's hearing good things. But he also had heard about them that they have love for all the saints. Now that's two pretty good things to say about a church. To say, you know, I know those Emmaus people. They continue to trust Jesus and they continue to love one another. I mean, what better things could you say about a church and the nature of just how vibrant and, and its, its spiritual vitality? Those would be two things. And, and he knows how hard it is 
to have trust in Jesus in that Ephesian city. I mean, this was a pagan city that worshipped pagan deities. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the temple to the goddess Artemis at Ephesus. It was enormous. I've seen the, the, the remnant of it at Ephesus. This was a pagan city. Paul got in trouble there. If you read Acts chapters 18, 19, 20, you see about the trouble he got into when he was at Ephesus. In fact, at one point, they were looking for him because they wanted to tear him limb from limb, and they couldn't find him. And not long after that, he decided, now's probably a good time for me to leave Ephesus. But he knew about how difficult it could be to be a follower of Jesus in a city like, like Ephesus, and yet he hears that their faith is still in Jesus. Their trust is still in Jesus. And you can probably identify with how difficult it can be at times to be a follower of Jesus in the culture in which we live. I don't want to overdo it. I don't want to overstate how difficult it is to be a Christian in Shawnee or Moore, Oklahoma. Not, not many of us or lives are threatened because we're followers of Jesus in Oklahoma or really anywhere in the United States. But there are places in the world today where if you identify with Jesus, you're putting your life at risk. And yet, for people to still have trust in Jesus despite those kinds of circumstances, that's what provokes Paul. That's what is the catalyst for him to write this prayer on their behalf. Now, when he says, I've heard that you have love for all the saints. Now, I don't have to tell you about how difficult, I don't have to give you historical background like about Ephesus for you to know that's quite a claim to say they have love for all the saints. It doesn't matter where you live and in what period you live, to love others the way he seems to describe their love for one another is quite an accomplishment. Isn't it? I mean, you could probably look around. I don't want you to do it. But you could probably look around here, and if you took your time and you looked into the eyes of people sitting here this morning, I bet you'd see people that have been your Sunday school teachers. I bet you've seen, seen people that encourage you regularly when you come to church on Sunday. You'd see people that might have shown up at your house with a covered dish when somebody in your family died. You see people who meant a lot to you. Those people are easy to love. But you might catch a glimpse of somebody, maybe just one person, that's maybe a little more difficult for you to love. Maybe somebody who just has a knack for saying the wrong thing to you at the wrong time. Uh, and you could look around and, and the first thing you'd think was, you know, look at them sitting over there trying to look all holy after what they said about me. You know, that person. And yet, Paul could say about them, I've heard that you have love for all the saints. So it's in light of this that he prays this prayer. Now, what is the content of the prayer? And look at verse 17. Here it is. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory would give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in full knowledge of himself. Now, that's, there's just two, two points to this prayer, and that's the first one. The first one is that God would open your mind, that you might know God himself 
more fully. Now, he doesn't actually use the language of opening your mind, but he does pray that God would give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Both of those ideas, those terms that he uses, wisdom and revelation, have to do with the mind. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or knowledge of God is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs says both those things. But it involves the mind. You can think about the book of, the Pro- of Proverbs and all the ways that it, it attempts to change the way you see the world so that you live a world and step with God's purposes in that world. You should work hard. You should not slander others. This is the nature of wisdom, and it involves the mind. How about Revelation. Revelation here is about God, about God himself, about the nature of God himself. He asks that God, through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, might reveal God and his nature more deeply to you. You think about the Trinitarian nature of this prayer when he says the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you the Spirit. Now, you can look there in verse 17 and see if Spirit is capitalized or not in your translation. The word for Spirit, like, like the Spirit of the age or the Spirit of a person, not the Holy Spirit, just the Spirit, like the Spirit of the age, is the same word as Spirit when it means Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So your translation may decide it's just like give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation like a vibe or mood. But I don't think that's what he means. I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Give you wisdom and revelation in the full knowledge of God himself. It's very Trinitarian. That that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, by the power of his spirit, reveal the nature of God to you more deeply and more fully. Now that's not asking for bread for you today. That's not asking for more money for you today. That's not asking for more happiness for you today because if you have a deeper knowledge of God, all the other needs you have will fall into place. Knowledge of God is is less about, it it, it certainly involves uh, the mind, and he's going to go on to the heart in just a moment. But it, it's, it's something that is revealed to us. How would you know God if God did not make himself known to us? And the first place you can see that there is a God is just in what God has made in the creation. I've noticed it's spring, I'm at the end of spring break. We've been on spring break this week. We, we did a little bit of traveling. We went to North Texas area for a few days. And I noticed there, uh, both uh, coming back and while I was there, I just noticed the sunset. It was, it was beautiful. And driving back, I could look to my left as I was driving back to Shawnee. And that sunset was just striking to me on Tuesday afternoon. In moments like that, you're reminded that there is a God. And it's not just the beauty of the creation. Sometimes it's a tornado reminds you of the nature of God's power. But creation does that. But if God 
had not made the, the, the decision to make himself known, we couldn't know him. More specifically, he's made himself known to us in his word and ultimately in his son. These are the ways in which God has made himself known to us. And the Spirit now uses Scripture as the primary means of deepening our understanding and our knowledge of God himself. <clears throat> there is nothing that you need more today or that I need more today than a deeper knowledge of God himself. It just has a way of transforming your whole life and the way you see the world. I'm not talking about just coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm talking about something that continues to happen, an ongoing work in your life where you come to have a deeper knowledge of God. And as your knowledge and understanding of God deepens, it changes everything. It has the power to transform your life. It's like giving you lens that fit your eyes so that you can see the world more clearly. Now, you, you probably haven't noticed this today, but if you've watched me today, I'm, I have two pair of glasses that I'm, I'm carrying around this morning. When I came in this morning, I had these on because, oh, there you are. I can see you so well with these glasses. My eyes started giving me some problem weakening for reading about a decade ago, something like that. So I started buying these cheap readers, you know, for four, five, six, seven dollars, wherever you find a drugstore, Dollar Tree, whatever. And uh, this is one of the better pair. I think I paid twelve dollars for this pair. These are like one point two fives or something like that. I used to use these to read with. But you know what happens as you get older? If your eyes, if you once you start needing reading glasses, you're probably going to need to start going up. So I started noticing I, I, I'm not seeing as clearly, and you know I have to be able to read. So I started upping the level. So these just got tossed in the drawer. I want you to know now, these are my readers. These are 3.25s, up from 1.25. And that's as high as the readers go without going to my optometrist, which I'm going to have to do. I'm just putting it off. So here's what I do. To see, like at a distance, I found that I can go back to the first readers I had. And man, I can see great. I can see the expression on your faces. I can see to drive at night with these old readers, but I can't see to read anymore. So to read my Bible, I got to put these on, but now I don't see you as well. Your faces are a little fuzzier. Now I hear they're doing wonderful things with bifocals these days. And I'm going to go to my optometrist. I have a wonderful optometrist, and he actually goes to Emmanuel Baptist Church in Shawnee. And he mentioned to me after preaching there in January that I should come by and see him. He'll take care of this problem. He observed what I was doing. <laughs> what he doesn't know is that when I'm at home, like sitting in a chair, watching the TV, maybe reading something also, I'll sometimes do this. So now I can read. And then I put these on right there. <laughs> And I can see a prayer for God's people up there on the board, and, uh, and I can see you. It works perfectly. And I hear that's what bifocals will do for you in one pair, but that's going to require me making an appointment and going and getting them. So for now, I'm doing this. But, but doing that, man, that clears everything up. I mean, it, it allows me to do everything I need to do, like, just like that. It's amazing what the right lens can do 
for your vision. And it's, a, it's amazing when you see things clearly how much easier it is to navigate life. That's precisely what knowledge of God does. The, the deeper your knowledge of God, the more clearly you see yourself, the world around you. Transform your life. And the, and the Scripture is the primary means by which God does that, through the Spirit. What can studying Ephesians on a Sunday do? It can change your life. Because it can deepen your knowledge and understanding of God. Now, he goes on then, in, starting in verse 18, and, he, and he, it's, the, it's the second request. The first one is, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and full knowledge of himself. That's request number one. The second is that he might enlighten your eyes. He says in verse 18, and that he might enlighten the eyes of your heart in order that you might know. Now I'll pause right there because he's got three specific things he requests about enlightening the eyes of your heart. But you notice how he moved now? From the mind, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that's, that's your mind, your ability to reason, to now enlighten the eyes of your heart. So mind and heart. Paul knows that human beings are complex beings, and we think and we make decisions not only with our head, but with our heart. I, I live my life. For 25 years, I'm finishing 25 years at OBU. I've lived my life the last 25 years around 18 to 22-year-olds for the most part. And I can attest to the fact that 18 to 22-year-olds don't always make decisions purely with their minds. It's not all about reason and logic. It's not all about, hmm, what should I do? Here's a list of pros and cons. Well, this one wins out and then do that. And it's not just 18 to 22-year-olds. We all do that. Don't we kind of like it when people go with their gut? Well, my head's telling me to do this, but I went with my gut. And we say, yeah, go with your heart. That's what we mean. Heart in the New Testament is like what we say when we say gut. It's like the seat of your emotions. Don't we make a lot of decisions with the gut? We go with our gut. We go with our heart. People tell you all the time, follow your heart. Well, what about your head? And there's this, we're complex beings, and, and we sort of live out of both mind and heart, and Paul knew that. So he prays that God would open their minds, but also enlighten their hearts. And I don't know that we like it when we realize that we make a lot of decisions against the mind and with the heart. Because we like to think we're rational beings, you know, we're logical thinkers. We, we plot everything out and then make the wise decision based on the head. But we don't a lot of times. So there's this constant back and forth. And um, I guess it's our dirty little secret, you know, that we make a lot of decisions from the heart, from the gut, based on emotions, often going against the mind, or what seems logical or reasonable. 
And if, if you ever doubt this reality, then I would just encourage you to watch some commercials on TV. Super Bowl's not too far in the rearview mirror. Watch the Super Bowl commercials. Those are, the, those are the commercials that get the most attention. And ask yourself, are these companies that have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars in, in crafting these ads and then paying for them to run during the Super Bowl, what are they appealing to in me? Mind or heart? Some will appeal to mind. They'll tell you why you should choose their product. They'll make an argument for why theirs is the best product. And others, they just go for the gut. They go for your emotions. I mean, it's why a beer company will use puppies to sell their ads. They want you to go, aw. And at the end you might say, now what was that a commercial for? There's nothing about the product. There's nothing about Budweiser, Bud Light. They're not selling you on why you should buy that. It's just, it's the puppies. That's not mine, that's heart. I'll tell you who knows the secret. Victoria knows the secret. <laughs> if you've ever watched those ads. Same thing. It's like trying to get you to buy beer by puppies. Trying to get you to buy these garments. Not trying to convince you about why it's a better product. You don't, I mean, I don't know what these products are, you know, the, the fabric. Where the fabric comes from. The price of these. I couldn't tell you. I, I, would, I would say it's pretty evident to me that we learn, we know, we live from mind and heart. So Paul says, how about the heart? I pray, he says, that God would enlighten your, the, the eyes of your heart in order that you might know, one, what is the hope of his calling? That's the first thing. What is the hope of his calling? Calling here doesn't mean you're called to ministry. Calling here is calling to come and follow Jesus. And the hope of being part of his people. And if you go back to verse 4, which we talked about this morning, it was part of what I did in the morning session, you get the hope of his calling in the past. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The hope of his calling has a past tense. He chose you. The hope of his calling is that he initiated the relationship with you. He reached out to you. He was pursuing you. That's the hope of his calling. Not that it was on me to find God. He already found me. That's the hope of his calling that you might Know that you might appreciate through the eyes of your heart. You might know in your gut what it means that the God of all creation pursued you. There's also a present ongoing aspect to that. And that's also in verse 4. He actually says it beautifully here. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world in order that we might be holy and blameless before him. The ongoing aspect of his choice of us, his election, his calling, is this ongoing aspect where he continues to make us into the people he's called us to be. It's the hope of his calling. 
that, that I'm being fashioned and made into the person that God made me to be. Every day I'm becoming more like that. That's the hope of his calling. It's, we sometimes use fancy words like sanctification, but it's just, it's just becoming more like Jesus. That's part of the hope of his calling, this ongoing process. But there's also a future. Anytime you use the term hope, you know it's forward-looking. And, and he uses language like that even in chapter 1. Look down there at verse 9. He says, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good, uh, his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, for the administration of the fullness of the times, in order that he might sum all things up in Christ, that all things might be put under the lordship of Christ. That's the hope of his calling moving forward. That everything is moving towards Christ as its goal. That he's summing all things up under Christ as head. And we belong to him. It's the hope of his calling. And it's forward looking. I don't know how, I don't know how you live. I don't know how you face a day without this future hope of his calling. I don't know how you say goodbye to loved ones in death without the hope of his calling. So here's the prayer. That God might enlighten the eyes of your heart that you might know the hope of his calling. The second thing, it's there in verse 18. Or excuse, uh, yeah, middle ways verse 18. That you might know what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints. Now I want you to, to notice that sometimes when he talks about God's inheritance, he's talking about something that God has for us. Like uh, if you have, uh, if your parent or grandparent may, may die and they have a will and they leave you an inheritance, that's something that you receive from them. And that's frequently what the New Testament is talking about when it talks about inheritance. It's what God has for us by virtue of being adopted children into his family. We now have an inheritance from him. And he's referred to that already in chapter 1. But sometimes Paul talks about God's inheritance, and he's not talking about what God has for us. He's talking about what we are to God. That we are God's inheritance. And I'm very confident that's what he's talking about when he, when he says that that we might know in, in our gut, in our heart, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints. Now this is just Old Testament language. Let, let me read you a passage from Deuteronomy uh, with, with, this, with this language. Deuteronomy 9.29. He's talking about the Exodus. But they are your people, talking about Israel, your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. That God had purchased them. He had made them his own possession, that is Israel. And he referred to them, and he does it numerous times in the Old Testament, as his inheritance. 
Much of the same language used of Israel in the Old Testament is used generally about God's people in the New Testament. And here it is. And this is something for you to know deep in your heart today. That you are God's glorious inheritance. He bought you. He purchased you. He paid the price of the death and blood of his son. You are his inheritance. This is the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints. That we are God's inheritance. That's how deeply valued, that's how deeply treasured you are to God. You are his inheritance. If, you, if you're feeling low, if you're feeling like you don't have any value as a human being, just know that God chose you and made you his inheritance. That's who you are. And then the, the final part of this prayer, that opening the eyes of the heart, so that you might know, one, the hope of his calling, two, that you are his glorious inheritance, and third, that you might know what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us, the ones who believe. I want you to see the power language that Paul uses here. He uses four words that have to do with power in this one verse. In verse 19, he uses the word power that you might know what are the surpassing greatness of his power. Now, I don't want to throw a lot of Greek at you. You're probably sitting there saying, I don't know Greek, so don't give me Greek. Just give me English. But, but this is a word you'll recognize. It's a Greek word dunamis. We, we use it. To, to explain like explosive kinds of power. Now, Paul didn't know about dynamite, but he knew about explosive power. He knew about power that was great. And that's, that's how he, where he starts, that you might know the surpassing greatness of his power, God's power. That's the first word. And, and then he says, to those who believe, according to uh, the power or the powerful working, I don't know what word your translation uses, but this is a word, we get our word energy from this word. Two different words for power in Greek. So Paul's stretching his vocabulary here a little bit. He's got his thesaurus out, and he's trying to, he's trying to use language of power. And the power that is God's that's available to his people. And then he finishes with the flourish flourish of two words for power his mighty strength that you might know the surpassing greatness of his power which is at work which is his powerful working of his mighty work or mighty power four words for power contrasted with look in verse 20 which he worked, that is this power, in Christ, by raising him from the dead, seating him at the right hand, uh, at the right hand in the heavenlies, above all, rule and authority and power and dominion. There he uses four words that are also power words. There are powers out there in the world. He's going to say in chapter 6, our greatest enemies are not visible ones, they're invisible ones. They're powers and rulers and powers of the air. They're not flesh and blood. These powers are active in the world against God's people, and yet the power of God is greater 
His prayer is that you might know the surpassing greatness of His power, which is at work, demonstrating His mighty strength. This is the power at work for us. And if you don't, if you don't know what God's power looks like, He describes it here. In verse 20, which he worked in Christ, this power that he's talking about, by raising him from the dead. You want to know what kind of power this is? This is resurrection power. The power to raise the dead. That's the power at work that he's talking about. You think of that. You think of power, the power to raise the dead. There's no greater power resurrection power paul prays in another prison letter another letter he wrote from prison philippians 3 10 that i might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings in order that i, I might be made like him in his death that by any means possible i might attain unto the resurrection of the dead that power paul prayed for there is the power he says is available to us resurrection power and seated him at the right hand in the heavenlies it's talking about his the power to place his beloved son at his right hand the place of honor and authority it's a place of power over all rule and dominion and authority and above every name which has been named which sounds a lot like Philippians 2, again. And then verse 22. And it's the power that has subjected all things under his feet. Psalm 110, the most cited psalm in the New Testament from the Old Testament, says, uh, it says, um, this, this is my son, this is... My Lord says to the Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. That's Psalm 110. He's already said he's seated at the right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. It's a picture of Jesus having authority over everything, all powers. That's the picture. That's the power that Paul is praying that they would know that this power is available for us we feel overwhelmed we feel like there are things set against us we feel like life is hitting us far harder than we can endure paul prays that they would know that there is power available and they would know it in their heart in their gut in their emotions as well as in their heads he says it this way, continuing in verse 22, And he subjected all things under his feet, and he made him head over all things for the church, which is his body. Now, it's true that Christ is the head of the church, but that's, he's saying something even bigger here. He has subjected all things. He has made him head over all things. Not just head of the church, over all things for the church do you know what benefit it is for the church that our lord and savior has authority over everything 
I told you I've been at OBU for 25 years. I've got a son there now. He's in his junior year. When, when he first walked on the campus, I think he thought because I'm his dad, that was going to mean he wouldn't even have to go to class. He was just going to get grades. And early on, you know, something wasn't quite right, it was great or something, he'd want me to contact his professor. I mean, in his mind, I was sort of head over all things there. Well, he was wrong. I'm not head over anything, and, and, I'm, and I like it that way. I'm just fine. I just want to be over my classes. That's it. But he's going to have to figure those things out himself. He's figured that out by now, or he wouldn't still be there. But we're not talking about me. We're talking about the God of all creation here who has made his son head over all things for us that's what he's praying for for them and that's what i'm praying for for you that god would open your minds that you might know god more deeply and that he might enlighten your heart so that you might know the hope of his calling That you might know the surpassing greatness of his power available to you. And that you might know that you are his glorious inheritance. And here's the good news of all that. By the power of God and for his glory, for the glory of our great king, we cannot lose. Now we there, I'm not talking about the United States, I'm not talking about the University of Kentucky today at 140, they could very well lose. I'm talking about the church. We cannot lose. I don't care how high the price of a dozen eggs go. I don't care how high inflation goes. I don't care what it costs for a gallon of gasoline. I don't care how many people cross the southern border illegally. I mean, I do care, but not for whether or not we win. I don't care what chaos might happen in Washington, D.C. or what chaos might happen in Ukraine. We cannot lose for the glory of our risen King. Our Father, I pray that by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes and our minds today so that we might know who we are and the power available to us because of who we are. Father, I pray encouragement for the person who needs it today. I pray for that person who's searching Maybe the thing they're looking for is the forgiveness and love you want to offer them today. I pray during this invitation time they might respond to what you're asking them to do. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing together the song of worship. If we can pray for you in any way, we're going to be right down here at the front. We'd love to pray for you. After we sing this song, Dr. Kelly is going to pronounce a blessing over us and we'll be dismissed. Come, let us pray for you as we sing together. This morning, this song is a prayer. 
So I invite you to, to ask God to increase the capacity to believe the power that's at work within you, the inheritance you have, the calling on your life. Let's pray this song together this morning. There is no other so sure and steady. My hope is held in your hand. When castles crumble and breath is fleeting, upon this rock I will stand. Upon this rock I will stand.
Amen. Can we celebrate the risen King, that He is our Lord and our Savior, Bobby? Come and bless us, brother. All right. Our Father, now I ask that as you go from this place today, that you go with God and that you not be afraid. May the Lord go before you to lead you. May the Lord go behind you to protect you. May the Lord go beneath you to secure you. May the Lord walk beside you to befriend you. Now go. Go with God and be not afraid. Amen. Thank you. May us, if we can pray for you and encourage you anyway, please come and find us after the service. Stick around, hang out, uh, encourage one another. We'll hope to see you tonight. <laughs>